0: Well, it being in the Gospel of Mark, and when you just kind of let the Scriptures lead you as you do series and things like that, it you come across verses that can be difficult and tough, and you got to walk through them, and you walk through them together as best as you can. In community, and, and what questions that these Scriptures inspire, you're able to sit and talk about and unpack. And so... Uh, this morning, we're in, 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 in one of the more delicate situations of, of the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus makes some pretty incredible statements uh, in this portion together. But let's just, let's just start in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon, he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away He's out of his mind, they said. Now, <clears throat> here's where I, I love... I mean, obviously they leave some details out, and you don't have all the details behind it, but, but this is where my brain started to go. It's like not... It wasn't the death threats. It wasn't the threat of, of Jesus being taken away and arrested. It wasn't any of that plotting that really made his family go, we got to get this boy home. It was the fact that the mama heard, my baby's not eating, and so the family decides, now we got to go get him, because nothing makes a mom more concerned than her baby not eating. I mean, this is the process is, you know, it wasn't the family that saw that he wasn't eating, but the rumor mill had done its job, and word had gotten back to Jesus' family. And, I, and again, this is a little more information than you probably need, but I'm always seeing, like, the rumor guy. He's like, you know, um, hey, uh, Mary, I, uh, I hear things. I hear things. Yeah, my, uh, my boy at the fish market, Slippery Pete, yeah, he, uh, he says Jesus and his boys, they ain't eating. And I can see, like, Mary going, James, Jude, Little Ricardo, get in the cart. We're going to get Jesus and bring him home. I mean, this is, this is the way my brain works, and I know, like I said, it's probably too much information. But when the family comes to grab Jesus, it was in a way of, as the, it was being suggested that they wanted to tie him up and bring him home. Like, this is the bring-the-straight-jacket conversation because Jesus is out of his mind. And so the family pursues him in this way, but Jesus' commitment to do the will of God had people suggesting his sanity. And namely, because he was working himself into exhaustion and because meals were going uneaten. Now, if you're a creative type, if you're an artist, if you're an inventor, these stories are normal for you. Like this idea of, I'm on to a discovery, that means trays of food that people bring you are getting stacked up. Artists, when they are completely consumed with finishing a project, priorities like eating and sleeping don't even exist. Especially if you are on the verge of this life-altering creation or invention or all of these things. So these people weren't out of their minds. They were just so engaged and so alive in what they were doing that food and sleep really just didn't come to mind. I get that way when I get on a project, and I'm sure many of you who are in that same vein, you're that person who is on the front end of creating something, and you're just like, this is consuming me, and I'm consumed with it, and I have to finish it, and I don't care about my belly right now. I don't care if there's food sitting there. I'm going to finish what I started. Psychologists call this moment of discovery the aha experience when the things that should be priority for us don't seem as important because we are so engaged and alive in what we are doing. Jesus was not out of his mind, and we see that Jesus is fully present. But he's engaging in what God has planned for him and seeking and saving and serving. The family wasn't the only ones to step in and and accuse Jesus and say, look, you need to eat something. The disciples actually did this one other time. When he was hanging out with the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, the disciples were kind of ticked that he was talking to her, anyways, but they're like, We'll go get you some food, Jesus, because you need to eat. And then they return after Jesus has had this incredible conversation with this woman whose life is now changed. And this is what we see happening in John chapter 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. I love the disciples' questions here. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? Man, that was our only job. Bring this man some food. Somebody bring him food? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Jesus is actively engaged in creatively serving others and... His energy was renewed while he was doing those things. If you're a creative type, or if you're somebody who walks in that world, you sense your energy coming back when you are engaged in something that you love. When you're doing something that you enjoy, you find yourself, maybe you're not getting the food your body needs, but you are actually participating in the thing that brings you to life, and you're actually renewed in your doing those things. Typically, ignorance in the heart results in ignorance coming out of the mouth. And Jesus' family had really, really no clue, except for Mary, that for them to suggest, hey, let's bring Jesus home, would actually be interfering with why God put him here. And so Jesus, recognizing A, who he is, and where he's from, and what he's supposed to do, he was like, my family's not going to get me out of this. This is what I was, I'm here to do these things, and I'm going to do them now. Now. But then the Pharisees show up and they chime in on this whole, Jesus is out of his mind, but they take it a step further. And it kind of gets them in trouble. Because they didn't just say Jesus is crazy, they say and suggest something else. In Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22, But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. Kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. It is just like the religious of the day, those who are caught up in their forms and fashions and traditions of religion to miss the activity of God. Many times when God is working, they first try to pass it off as something other, but then they get mad. Then they not just this, not just calling Jesus crazy, they go to the extreme, they actually attribute all the good works he's doing to um, I don't know, Satan. I mean, there's no middle ground with the Pharisees. They run to like the most extreme every time. No middle ground. They start giving credit to the devil for what Jesus is doing. And see, exorcism wasn't new to Jewish people. What was new to these guys was Jesus' 100% accuracy rating. Like Jesus, 100% of the time, demons gone at his name, at his presence, at his saying. And so, what do we do when somebody is better at something than we are? We cry, cheater, right? How many times did you sit playing video games going, man, this thing's cheating. This thing's cheating. 100% of the time. I keep cheating. This game's cheating. It's rigged. And see, now what they could have done, what the Pharisees could have done in this moment is actually been like, man, it's cool. Jesus casts out 100% of the demons he comes in contact with because he's God. You know, it's it's, it's a fair thing. He's cheating in that way. But they don't. They're like, you know what? He's cheating, and it's the devil. There's no middle ground with these guys. They run right to the most extreme. And this is counter to all common sense. And isn't this what prejudice does? It blinds us, and it clouds our judgment. And in fact, Jesus is is calling these guys out for what particularly is happening is a hardening of a heart. And Jesus begins to sternly warn them. Jesus appeals to them through logic, and I love how Jesus does this. He's like, "Let's just look at this logically. Can we think about it for just a second? And This is why I say prejudice blinds us to any of this common sense, logic type like thinking. And Jesus says to them, "Okay, so let's let's think about this. A kingdom divided is that a good thing? No, because it's going down. It's going to weaken and will collapse." Families splintered. Is that a good thing? Like when a family's at war internally, how is that beneficial to anyone? It's not. It will collapse. And then Satan fighting against Satan? There'd be nothing left. Your argument is invalid. That is what he is saying to the Pharisees. Now, I'd like to think if Jesus was teaching today, he would refer to the first Avengers movie. I do. I like to think that. Because if you remember the storyline to the first Avengers movie, Loki shows up and he wants to do battle. But if Loki goes to battle against all the Avengers, what happens? He loses. He knows that. So what does he do? He pits them against each other. And what would happen if the Avengers fought against each other? Loki knew. I win. I'd like to think Jesus would use that illustration when talking to the Pharisees modern day, but still. Loki knew that if he could get the Avengers to turn on themselves... They would destroy themselves, not actually have victory over themselves. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. So Jesus goes on to explain, for there to be any traction in this battle, you have to have a stronger man who is capable of walking into the strong man's house, tying him up, and taking all of his things. And I love that picture of Jesus. like I love Jesus walking into this strong man's house, kicking the door down. Being like, This is my hat now. My hat. Totally my hat. That's a reference many of you probably will never know, but that's okay. But Satan being a strong man, he's obviously acknowledging that there's been some power that this, this guy is walking in and that he's got a house and there's some, some things being kept in there that cannot get out on their own. Satan's house being this grip of sin and death. Satan's possessions being those people under that grip of sin and death. And as Jesus walks in as the stronger man, not only does he take the things out of the house, he also ties up and binds this strong man. Jesus is stronger. And I know sometimes we like to give and attribute strength to other things, but the reality is Jesus is that stronger man. Jesus walks in to this house, Satan, strong, yes, acknowledging that, death, sin, gripping his possessions, and Jesus, because of who he is and his strength, walks in and takes it. Not only does he take it, but he binds Satan, ties him up. Jesus is stronger. Now, Jesus, after this illustration, introduces this this phrase, and over and over and over we hear him say, I tell you the truth. And it's not because Jesus was lying about everything else he'd already said, but it's because he's going, Hey, wake up. Pay attention to what I am about to say, because what I'm about to say really, really matters. Yes, Jesus addresses there the Pharisees' silly logic, but he's saying to them in a very serious tone, you are bordering. On total destruction in your thinking you are bordering on the game being over for you if you say these things if you do these things he says look all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven it will be forgiven but there is a sin that leads to eternal consequences I think he needs to say, I tell you the truth in these statements, because we start to freak out, right? Tell somebody there's a sin that is unforgivable, and in your brain and in your heart, you just start running through the list of your life, don't you? Wait a minute. Hold on. Unforgivable sin. There's a sin that's unforgivable. Okay, so did I? Okay. There was that one time. I did punch that dude, but then when I apologized, I wasn't really sorry for it. So is that, am I still freaking, what is it? This thing, these lists, we start running through in our brains and we start asking the questions. Could I actually commit the unforgivable sin? Have I actually committed the unforgivable sin? Even accidentally? This is how the brain works. We start panicking. We start going, what is it? What is it? How does it work? But first, I just want to make sure we know what the unforgivable sin is not. But to do that, I really do have to say... For those of you that know the gospel, love the gospel, and not just attending church, you're going to say in these moments, you're right, I love this. You see, on the cross, as, as people who are called believers, okay, that's what we're called, we're called believers. What we actually believe is that my good deeds or bad deeds do not determine eternity. The work of someone else covers my life. His life, his death, his resurrection covers me. That means that in that seeking Jesus and believing on his life, death, and resurrection, I have been covered for all sins, past, present, and future. All sins, all times covered because of someone else's work. What Jesus did on the cross, when I say I'm putting my faith and my trust in what Christ has done, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, I trust your works. Your good works covered mine. Your death covered mine. Your resurrection is the guarantee that my life is yours. That's what the gospel Says, that's where we walk. That's how we walk. We understand that we are not called doers. We're called believers. And what have we believed? We have believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection covers us completely. That means when I'm walking this way or this way, I'm not walking in and out of more forgiveness or less forgiveness. I have been forgiven. This is what it means to be hidden in Christ. So this means, in many religious sectors, they do believe that suicide is the unforgivable sin, where they talk about, you know, you've got to be kept up on your forgiveness, you've got to be able to say you're sorry for certain things, and X, Y, and Z, yeah, they talk about Jesus, but the reality is it comes down to us, the number of times we can say we're sorry, the number of times we can ask for forgiveness, and the reality is, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. In the same vein... Bad attitudes, sexual immorality, adultery, curse, being a part of a cult, doubting, greed, even ugly words against Jesus can and will be forgiven. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually has the phrasing in there, you could speak bad about me, but why is it specifically blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that would be considered the unforgivable sin? Blasphemy means to slander or speak falsely against someone. So to be able to speak falsely against someone, you actually have to know the truth. And what is it that the Holy Spirit does? And there are many roles that He plays in the life of a believer, but for this morning in particular, we'll look at John's words. In John chapter 16, Jesus says these words, And when He, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world of its Sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. This is an interesting statement. The world's sin is unbelief. I know there are many of us that probably keep a list of our sins in our head, going, yeah, that one, that one would totally keep me out of the presence of God in the future. That one would keep me totally, you know what, I know what I did, I know what my action was, I know what I said, that one would totally, Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit comes, convicts us of our sin, and that that sin is that we refuse to believe Jesus. The world's sin is unbelief. Who are known as those who don't believe in Jesus. Unbelievers. What does the Holy Spirit do? Convicts us of our unbelief. It's at hearing His lead, pointing us to the only way to be forgiven in Jesus. Effectively, I was looking, and and this is how awesome the internet is, I was looking for a picture of that guy, you know, who's standing on the edge of the branch, he's standing on the branch And the tree's over here and he's cutting with the the saw, you know, on this side. I was just looking for a comic or a picture, but because the internet, you get to watch somebody actually do it. (laughs) Not just a a comic, but because the internet, (laughs) you can actually watch somebody cut themselves off (laughs) of a tree. And in effect, because of the the Pharisees' words, Jesus was saying, you are cutting yourself off from the only way salvation is possible, and that is by the Holy Spirit's convicting us of our unbelief and our need for a Savior. What separates me from God is rejecting the Holy Spirit's work of conviction that Jesus is who God says he is. Unbelief. Now see, my potty mouth, my secret addiction, my whatever you're thinking of is this outer result of ultimately unbelief. But my individual curse words that I have spoken in this life are not what cuts me off from the Father. Unbelief. This is how serious Jesus is with the Pharisees. You guys, you have not committed it yet, but you are bordering on this. You are rejecting the way you could be saved. And this is, and I tell you the truth statement, this is the unforgivable sin. Truly, if you think about it, to reject the only way one can be forgiven for an entire lifetime is, follow me logically, unforgivable Jesus in John 14 26 explains what the Holy Spirit will do but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative that is the Holy Spirit he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you there are times we like to put characteristics on the Holy Spirit that I don't even think the Bible describes the Holy Spirit doing And so when you have questions about the role of the Holy Spirit, turn to the Word. Turn to Scripture. Turn to Jesus. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. He talked about His role in salvation. He talked about why He would come to convict the world of its sin, and its sin is it has refused to believe in me. Jesus' chances are he knew the hearts of the Pharisees because we know through the Gospels that he can read both men's hearts and their minds. And he pointed to this extreme because if the Pharisees had just seen Jesus heal a mute and a demon-possessed man. They hardened their hearts toward this clear miracle from God. It's fascinating if you read Paul's letters, he never mentions an unforgivable sin. Jesus is the in three of the four Gospels an unforgivable sin is mentioned There are lists that Paul explains to the church that point to how we can know who and what we've put our trust in. If I'm practicing and blatantly running towards sexual immorality, greed, idol worship, slander, murder, division, all the lists that we see in the New Testament, then chances are I've not turned to believe on Christ. Chances are I have not... Let the Holy Spirit play that role of convicting me of, of my sin, my unbelief, and I am still walking in what I believe to be true. And that is that sexual immorality, greed, my kingdom, division, whatever it is, that's my way. And for the Pharisees to reject the Holy Spirit's invitation to believe on Jesus is to effectively reject the only way for life to happen. But that which is unforgivable is unbelief. Paul uses the phrase, those who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The outer practice of a sin is the result of an inward heart of unbelief that Jesus is enough. Many of those lists, sexual immorality, greed, slander, murder, Paul says directly after, you guys used to live this way. You used to. But now, through faith in Christ, your lives look totally different. The life you live is now not by your own strength or by your own understanding, but the life you live is by faith in the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. So Paul, even in these lists of these things, he's saying, look, you, some of you used to live this way. This was your normal. And now, because of your faith in Christ, game has changed completely. The author of Hebrews says it this way, But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. Jesus is that stronger man who busts into the house of the enemy, ties him up, and takes those that are his out of that house because of his strength, not because of ours. Because of his ability, not because of ours. Because of his life, his death, his resurrection, he is the stronger man. When I talk with teenagers or people who say this phrase, I'll give my life to Christ then. And then they fill in everything else underneath. They're like, well, when I'm 30, I'll get serious about following Jesus. But I'm 18, and i got my own things to do. I'll do whatever I want. And then when I start having kids and realizing I need to get back into church, then I'll start following Jesus. My question to you is this. How do you know that? How do you know that your heart won't be so hard to the leading of the Holy Spirit that you will no longer be able to turn to Him and repent because you don't see it. Jesus is saying that a lifetime of rejection of the only way to be saved by the Holy Spirit convicting us of our unbelief is, follow my logic here, unforgivable. If the only way to forgiveness is belief on Jesus and a lifetime of rejection of that. How do you know your heart will not be so hard to the Holy Spirit's introduction that you need a Savior that you will not be able to turn and repent? I mean, obviously Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. We don't even know if tomorrow is guaranteed. Today has got enough troubles of its own. That is why I believe when the scriptures say, today, when you hear his voice, It is the Lord inviting people into relationship through faith in Christ. To any of you in this room, to myself, who feel the weight of your sin and a longing to turn from that sin, turning to Christ, the Bible promises and the cross displays that you will be forgiven. This is why Jesus is the total deal. As Christ followers, we don't come around singing our praises. We sing the praises of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our unbelief, we see that it is in turning to Jesus, and it is belief that saves us. It's when we can no longer repent that we have gone too far, when we have hardened our heart to his calling and find ourselves unable to respond but for you today. That's why today is the day of salvation. A lifetime of rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, of our need for a Savior, is the only sin that God cannot forgive. Unbelief is why the Holy Spirit stepped in to convict us of our unbelief so that we might turn to Jesus and look to Him to rescue us. But for the believer, the one who has turned in faith to Jesus and the work he did on the cross, rest in your security. Rest that you are held by God. Rest that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. If you're one who struggles with those thoughts, Romans 8, you need to live there for a while. You need to dive into Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Jesus said, All sin and all blasphemy will be forgiven. So, whatever excuses you're making for I can't be forgiven, would you just hear Jesus? All sin and blasphemy will be forgiven you've ever walked with the thought of, could I commit the unforgivable sin? It's actually a good place to be. It's actually a sign of caring for how God meets His people. It's humility. And the possibility of turning to Christ remains for you. Could you, in Christ, commit the unforgivable sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Those who are His will not even accidentally commit those work, commit the unforgivable sin. As the band comes and plays, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice For our sins. Because Christ is that stronger man. The one who came and plundered the strong man's house. You are safe. You are secure. And as hard as it may be to believe. Covered in the blood of Christ. You are pleasing in the sight of God. This is the magnitude. Of the Holy Spirit. Stirring us to recognize our need for a savior. Covered. In the blood of Christ. Jesus did not pay some of it. Jesus paid for all of it. Jesus points out that Satan would not be the one destroying his own house. But nonetheless, Satan's house was being destroyed. Because a stronger man came in, bound him up, plundered his house. Jesus is stronger. John 3.16 For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is where we rest. This is what we rest in. Not my works, not my ability or inability to keep something or not do something, but I rest in the total work finished on the cross. This is what it means to be hidden in Him. It is not a combination of words that reconciles you or condemns you. So if you have said the words, I hate God, I hate Jesus, I hate all of that stuff. Even you, Jesus said, could be forgiven. Forgiven. Jesus said it. If Jesus says it, you need to take it to the bank. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting and going, you have not placed your trust in Christ, do it. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not later, but today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. It is a posture of your heart. The Holy Spirit indwells his people by faith. The Holy Spirit tells us of Jesus and to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject God's way of salvation. It's to close the door and say, I'm good, I'll save myself. But the Holy Spirit invites us to believe on Jesus. So this morning, I want to close a little differently than we than we might normally. But sometimes there's those moments when you just want to declare something. You just want to say it. You just want to say it out loud. And so this morning, as as before the band plays, I, I just want to give us that opportunity, because sometimes you come into a place like this, and you come from a hard week, and you're just walking around people who don't care, who don't believe, who don't anything, and you just want to stand shoulder to shoulder with people who would say, I believe that Jesus is who the Father says He is. You just want to say that out loud. You just want to proclaim it, declare it together. If that's you, and you're like, man, I want to do that, just stand right here. You can just stand in this room. If, if you don't want to, you don't have to. But if you just want to say, I believe He is who He says He is, and you just want to stand together, you can do that. Now, for those of you in this room who would say, you know what? I think I find myself believing this. But I've never followed through with what we see in, in Scripture in Baptism what do I do with this? What do I do with this belief? Like, I believe that he is who he says he is. Well, we see in the scripture that people believe and then they're baptized because they're A, saying I'm his out loud. I believe that he is who he says he is. And I'm saying I want to be with these people who say these words, that Jesus is the son of God. And so this morning, as some of our elders and our small group leaders are standing over there, and I'll be standing over here, if you're like... I think that's my next step. I think I'm supposed to walk through the waters of baptism. Just come, let somebody know. They'll pray for you. And then there's some connect cards on these seats. You can fill that out. You can let somebody know. We'll follow up with you. But that's what we see. That's the, when, I, when belief shows up, we just do as Jesus did and we walk through those waters together, baptism. But sometimes... To declare that Jesus is who he says he is, we need to do that together. We need to say those statements together, and that's why we get together with the body of Christ in these moments. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts when you hear his voice. Father, we love you, and I just ask that in these moments that we would understand why Jesus treated this so intensely, Because it was the one thing that would keep creation from being with Creator, and that is unbelief. And Lord, I pray this morning that if belief is swelling up in the lives of people who one time found themselves not believing, that Jesus, you would continue to stir that, that we would not harden our hearts to unbelief, but that we would say, Jesus, you're enough. You are the Son of God. It's in your name we pray all these things.